Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. My name is Tessa. My name is Michael McCarthy. And I'm Laura Hamill. And we're so happy to have with us today, Diana Chapman, who is the author of The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Diana, welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I want to celebrate my co-authors, Jim Dethmer and Kaylee Klemp, who also wrote the book with me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I'm going to go ahead and kick us off with our first question. So I have been pouring over the book (laughs) over the past few weeks. And, you know, the book talks about uh, the the discusses the differences between conscious and unconscious leadership as a state of mind. So to kick us off, can you talk a little bit about what is what are the elements of conscious leadership? Okay, so conscious leadership, we'd say conscious means to be here now, which my experience is most of us aren't here now. We're in the past or we're in the future. And we're trying to control something about one of those things. So first of all, can you be here now? And can you be here now in a non-triggered, non-reactive state? (sighs) The place where there is no problem. There's just things to learn. So can I be here now in a non-triggered, non-reactive state is conscious in our definition. And then leadership is anyone who wants to take responsibility for their influence in the world, which that means everybody in my book can be a leader if they're wanting to really pay attention to that and, and be aware of how they are influencing things, whether that be at home or at work or in your community. So conscious leadership to be here now in a non-triggered state paying attention to your influence. I love that response. It makes it feel like anyone can do this without having any prerequisites. I love the accessibility. One of my favorite parts of the book, which I've really enjoyed, and I've learned quite a bit, was tapping into your emotions, really identifying which of the five you're feeling or what combination, and then making a sound and it really does get rid of them. I, th- I thought that was a, so much fun to do. But my, my next question is, what sort of feedback have you been getting from readers where they said, oh, this is really working so well in the real world? What has landed really well in your experience from reader feedback? A couple of things, I think. Um, one thing that's going really well is this concept called fact and story. So, uh, Facts are what the camera records without interpretation, without adjectives or adverbs. And then your story is all of your subjective opinion about those facts. And that one of the things people are recognizing is the facts themselves without stories don't cause stress or upset. It's the stories that people put on them and the stories come from them. So their upset is sourced from within, not from the conditions out there. 
And that's a radical concept. But when you really try it on, you start to recognize I'm the source of all of my stress because it's my beliefs, my stories, my beliefs that interpret that I interpret and upset myself with, not the facts. That's a radical concept, but that is a that's getting a lot of traction out in the world. Another one that's very popular is this exercise we call teach the class. So we have a team who is not made their numbers this quarter. And I say to them, teach me the class. I have another team that doesn't want to make their numbers this quarter, just like you guys didn't make yours. Teach me how to do it. How did you guys not make your numbers? And at first they go, wait a minute, that we, we didn't have anything to do with it. And I go, just, just check. What would we have to do if we wanted to not make our numbers the way you did? And everybody stops and pauses and everybody can find things like, well, don't communicate about X, Y, Z, or uh, don't talk to, you know, product about blah, blah, blah. Or, and they start to realize, oh, we have a part to play. We're the creator of the, of us not making the numbers. It didn't happen to us. It happened by us. And that's a, that's a really big shift that moves people out of victimhood and really into this idea that I'm the creator. And what I have them do is write out the course. How do you not make your numbers? And then I say, there's your exercise for how to make your numbers. Just go do the opposite of everything you just said here for next quarter. You don't need a coach. You don't need anybody. You've got all the information when you really take a look at how you got here. I love it. That's great. Thank you. Laura, would you like to go next? <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, the focus of this podcast is really around positive psychology and how it applies to work. And so when we were reading your book, when I was going through it, I was like, there's so many aspects of positive psychology woven throughout this whole book. Um, and, you know, there even take commitment number seven around generating appreciation, right? A big part around gratitude. So just curious about how do you really think about the field of positive psychology influencing your work and influencing this book? Well, I'm a big fan of positive psychology. My daughter actually graduated with that as her degree. And so I've been very involved with her studies and how she's been taking it. And it's certainly been, I would say, the principles of positive psychology of what have helped me more than most anything else in my personal journey. And so definitely they're woven into um, the book. And, you know, like the appreciation one, one of the things I love about that one is, can I appreciate the thing that I don't like? Like, I don't like the way you talked to me just now. Instead of, I resent the way you talked to me, I appreciate the way you talked to me. Even if it was like, I upset myself with that talk, I appreciate it because there's something of value here. I'm always seeing something of value, even in the the things that I say I don't really prefer. And that's a very different way of looking at appreciation um, to not just say, oh, you know, let me give you guys all some positive kudos. It's I appreciate that we didn't make our numbers this quarter. And then, and then what do we get? Because there's value. We get to learn something we couldn't have learned any other way if we hadn't created the scene. And so that's a whole nother level of, I think, in positive psychology of, of taking everything through this lens of there's value everywhere because everything's an opportunity to learn. Awesome. I love it. So as we are emerging out of the pandemic, Diana, and leaders and managers are coming back to the workplace, we've got 
uh, employees who have been at home for almost two years who are now being requested to either work in a hybrid environment or return to the office. They're still balancing, you know, the, especially those with little kids, you know, little kids are still getting quarantined from daycare and, you know, still living this kind of pandemic life, lots of stress, stressors between work-life balance. So what are, what are some of the things that you're seeing emerge as we come out of the pandemic that, that leaders need to be aware of um, as they come back to the office and re-engage their teams and what tips might you have for them as well? Well, first of all, one of the things that we ask people to do is first to locate yourself. Where are you? Are you above the line? We use this model called the line. Are you above the line, open, curious, wanting to learn? Or are you below the line, reactive, contracted, closed in some way, feeling a threat? Most of us spend most of our time below the line. That's natural and normal. So to your point, a lot of people are, are coming back, you know, being asked to come back to work from below the line. And so the second question after where are you, locate yourself, is can you just recognize you're scared? A lot of parents are really scared. How is this going to work? So we want to give people an opportunity to notice that they're scared and welcome being scared. A lot of people are trying to deny scared or try to work on top of it. But what we find is if we just help people feel scared and let that be okay, there's so much relaxes. Yeah, I'm scared. I don't know how this is going to work. Yeah, that makes sense. Ah, let's just one breath of acceptance till you're scared. And then would you be willing to see if you can shift out of that state of threat to a state of trust? It doesn't mean the conditions are going to change. Your child still might not be able to get access to childcare in the same way you used to. But how do we be with all that in an open, curious place? Because the likelihood of you being able to get creative, come up with different kinds of solutions, manage the stress will be significantly higher if you can be in that state of trust. And then we guide people through a series of questions to help them use to see if they can come back into that open state. But I think it comes down to it's okay to be scared. You know, and I think when leaders don't acknowledge that, when people are going fighting about the content you know, how many days we have to get back. It's not about the content. Address your context first. Where are we having these conversations? Are we having them from threat or are we having them from a state of trust? I think that's the most important thing we all can be asking right now. So Diana, if I can ask a follow-up to that, are, are there any techniques that you would advise for managers to, to, in working with their teams, to establish those conversations so that, they can get a pulse as to, you know, where are the, is are there team members above or below the line? Um, you know, can is this a way that they can work it into the weekly team meeting to have a, a check-in? What what types of techniques would you advise managers to maybe employ in, in a team setting? We have this little three-minute animated video on our resources page on our website. It's called How to Locate Yourself. And that little three-minute video is extremely popular because everybody plays it and everybody gets it. It really clarifies how we get above and below the line and why it's really helpful if we can do get above the line, if, if at all possible. So we have a lot of managers who don't know, haven't read our book, you know, haven't done anything, but they play that video and everybody goes, oh, okay. So then it starts a conversation. Hey, where are we? And then they can start talking about, can they, can they open up to a more curious place? So that's one thing. And then I think the other thing is 
and you mentioned it earlier, emotions are so big right now for a lot of us. Not only are we scared, but we're sad. We're really sad for the loss of a vision that we had. Some of us thought we were going to be able to stay at home. Some of us thought we were all going back to work. Some, so there's a lot of grief that needs to be felt. And some of us are angry. It feels like it's not serving to ask me to come back when I can't find childcare. So can we let there be space for the feelings to come through? Because if we try to talk on top of those, then we're going to have a lot of people who are contracted, holding back feelings, and then they're not going to really be available and curious for creative solutions. So, Diana, before I ask my next question, uh, did your daughter go to Penn to the MAP program? She did not. Where did uh, she go? She went down to Redlands University where she got to create her own uh, major. And so she majored in positive psychology as her own major that she set up. Oh. And studied over in Copenhagen, where there is an institute over there. Excellent. That sounds like fun. During during yeah. COVID, I went to Penn to the MAP program. And while everyone was having a tough time, I learned all about flourishing and well-being. And, and yeah, so I, I love the fact that it just seems to spread to other people. And, and you mentioned that it was it was beneficial to you. So I I'm a fan of positive psych myself. And my favorite part of the book was exploring how the opposite could be true. And I've had some conversations with myself on that, which have been rather helpful. And I'm curious with feedback from people who've, who've tried this, uh, how have you seen that commitment playing out in the workplace from people who, who report back to you? So it's another one of the pieces that people really like that works. So, um, you know, you should have been quicker in getting me that report. Well, maybe you shouldn't have been quicker. Maybe you've got other things on your plate. Maybe I shouldn't assume things. Maybe there was more detail than I realized. So the whole idea of opposite of the story is to not have to be right on either side. So I don't know if you should have been faster. Maybe you shouldn't have. They're both true and therefore they're both not true. So now my mind is neutral. So now I come to the conversation with curiosity when I'm not righteous about the way I see the world. And so that's the whole idea is, can I get my mind neutral out of a righteous stance so that then I can really learn? Can I learn more about how, why it took you the time that it did? Can I learn more about anything I can do to support that being different in the future? I have found that I uncovered so many assumptions that I just made them up. <laughs> yeah, always. Always, always. always. Thank always, you. we're always making up stories and then thinking we're right about them. It's it's constant. And so, yeah, if you knew me, you would know I use that tool in my own head hundred times a day for all kinds of things. Oh, you shouldn't eat that, Diana. Well, maybe you should eat that because at least it's true. You know, so then I'm not not eating it out of a control plan. Instead, I go, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Is that if they're neither one are true, then what do you want to eat? So that everything's coming more from presence. Thank you. So Diana, I'm curious about your career journey. How did you get to this point um, of writing this amazing book? And I'm just curious about that. Uh, I had the great uh, fortune of receiving a gift about 25 years ago from my sister-in-law and her husband. And they gave us some money and said, you can do whatever you want with the money, but we recommend you go out to California and study with Gay and Katie Hendricks. And I said, okay, I'm going. And so my husband and I went out and it was 
really, truly a life-changing five days. And I remember thinking, why am I just now learning these tools? Uh, and I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life figuring out how to get them out into the world. And that's what I did. I studied with them for 10 years. And then I did a lot of work on my own and then um, pulled together some colleagues who were all doing similar work that I was with leaders. We Most of us were working in the, with YPO around the globe. And so we thought, what is, what, what's the book we'd write for those leaders? And that's the book that came out and it's been going really well. It's, it's like the little engine that could book because we self-published and it's become wildly successful just as a word of mouth book. That is fascinating. That, so what were you doing before you, you did that training or you went with them? Um, I was a couples coach for 10. Uh, well, when I started working with them, I became a couples coach. And before that, I was a stay-at-home mom for 12 years. Wow, I loved, I loved that time in my life. And that was really important for me to be with them. And we, I pretty much was a full-time playmate to my kids. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. I just love to hear kind of the stories right behind where people are now. So thank you. Yeah. So Diana, I I'm curious because it, it seems like you uh, were able to, to find your passion and, and to be able to pursue that. How, how, what is your recommendation as far as how other people can pursue their passions or find that place where, um, you know, they, they're able to thrive in their zone of genius, as the book says, I, I feel like that's such a daunting question for, for people to even consider. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I do think it's really important to re- discover what is your zone of genius. And we have an exercise that we do where we ask people, Go back and think about your whole life and pick pick memories in which two things occurred. One, whatever you were doing, you really had fun. And it doesn't have to be haha fun. It could be like I took 20 people up a mountaineering and a mountaineering uh, vacation and it was quite rigorous and I got everybody safely up there. Um, it was hard work, but it was fun. Um, so whatever you were doing, you were having fun and whatever you were doing, you did an excellent job. Like people around you would say that was a, a really high quality uh, experience that you just had. And so you go find those eight memories and you share them with a group of people and you start to see that there's a thread of your zone of genius through at least six of those eight memories. And you get the reflection back because zone of genius is very hard for most people to name in themselves. It's like, this is a silly metaphor, but it works. It's like telling a fish, you're such a good swimmer. And the fish is going like, what do you mean? I, I'm just being me. I'm just swimming around here. It doesn't know that because it's always been there where zones of excellence are things that we've grown and developed over time through education and experience. And all of us can name that. But when you're in your zone of genius, time and space go away. You can often forget to eat. You would do it for free. Whereas zone of excellence, you usually want to get something back for it. And it's not always like time and space go away. So being able to identify that, we have coaches on our team who that's what they, they specialize in that. And you can come get support with identifying that. Then once you know your zone of genius, then you tune into what are you passionate about? Where could this zone of genius play out? My zone of genius could play out in hundreds of ways. It doesn't have to necessarily be here as a leadership advisor, but it could be in plenty of other places. It just so happens I'm passionate about people being happy at work. And I want to create conscious cultures so that that can happen. So that's where I put my attention here. But your, your genius can go um, wherever your heart goes. 
Excellent. So it's interesting because I um, I teach entrepreneurship and uh, with my students, I do a, a passion inventory. So it's a, it's a bit different from what you just described, although I really love the zone of genius um, approach. Um, but what's interesting about it is that they can have both negative or positive triggers that they're passionate about, right? So I think when people think passion, like what's my passion, they think about their favorite hobby and you know, perhaps a sailing or something. And yeah, I'd love to, to do that for the rest of my life. But it's also, you know, can be things that just really motivate you and, um, you know, compel you to do something about that. Um, I just had one more question. Oh, sorry. Did you want to say I wanted something? To say, I think a lot of us, I think the passion that really calls us is the thing that breaks our hearts. Mm. What breaks your heart? It breaks my heart to hear so many people spending most of their days in work that they don't love. That's heartbreaking to me or in relationship dynamics with bosses that aren't pleasurable. So I think that that's a great thing for people to look at is what breaks your heart that makes you want to go be the resolution for that thing. Wow. That's wonderful. So I think you've been sharing with us some of the ways that the things that you study, the things that you work on intersect with your own life, right? And I think that's what's pretty cool. I think about all of us, what we study, we get to kind of live and experiment with. I wonder if there are anything, any other things you'd like to share with us around how your work intersects with your personal life philosophy or the way you live your life. Yeah. Um, my whole life is in devotion to this, this body of work, my marriage. This is the way the 15 commitments are actually the commitments that we use for our marriage. Wow. They're the commitments that we use for parenting all of my community, my family of origin, we all practice this. We all have shared language and shared tools so that when we have these conflicts that rise, we have easy access to shared language that allows us to easily move through the conflict. So it's, there's no place in my life. I'm not doing this. (laughs) Wow. That's really cool. That's cool to hear that. Right. I think it's sometimes it's, it, it's easy to talk about things and it's harder to practice them. So that's really neat. Yeah. And I would say the big payoff is not only have I not had drama at work, I don't have drama in my family life. We have very little drama here. And it doesn't mean we have, don't have conflicts that arise, but they can just get moved through. But um, we get feedback too, when people are around us, like our family, my children are both adults now, but we all traveled recently and everybody was around us for the week and said, wow, you guys all get along so well. There's so much cohesion amongst you all. And I really think that's a result of all of us practicing together. I think it's been so interesting because I've, I've done some work with, uh, I guess you would call it self-help or self-improvement. So when you were mentioning uh, Gay and Katie Hendricks, I was like, oh, that's, yeah, I see it. I, I see it popping in everywhere. And it, it reminded me a little bit of Buddhism where you're just not getting so hung up in the emotions. You're just not getting these, these huge attachments to things. And one challenge I'd love to get your, your thoughts on is, so I've read the book and I'm in a negotiation with my boss and I gave him the book and I know he didn't read it. And <laughs> I'm stopping myself by saying, oh, you're doing that wrong. You didn't read the book. You're not supposed to be saying that. And I know that's probably not the best way to go. How would an employee read your book, buy into it, really like it, but they work with people who haven't, they're below the line. How do you navigate that? If, I, if I'm if i trying to be above the line, but I'm not the boss, 
and everyone around me is below the line. How do I navigate that? We say all drama happens because people aren't co-committed. So if I'm committed to revealing versus concealing and you're not, when I reveal, it's not going to go well because you don't have this shared commitment. Mm. So we have to be co-committed. I'm committed to not gossiping and you're committed to gossiping isn't going to go well. So that's first thing is we got to be co-committed. I'm committed to taking responsibility. You want to still blame. So once we're co-committed, that helps a lot. And then we have to make clear agreements. How, what are, what are the agreements of how we will share our emotions with one another? What are the agreements for how we are going to um, invite each other to come back and take responsibility when we hear each other blaming? So all teams, if they're not co-committed with clear agreements, will have drama. So the first thing that we say is if you are not the leader, you can still read a book and you can still pass it out to the team or put send the team to our website with a lot of content is and say, hey, would you guys check this out? I'd just love to start a lunch conversation with you about this. And just to see, would you guys be interested in co-committing to some of these things? Because I think this could be really valuable. Now, obviously, the leader who has the most decision rights, if they're coming and saying, this is the way I'd like us to all collaborate together, really helps. And sometimes somebody has given the um, book to their boss and it's worked. And the boss said, let's do this. And so, um, but it's tricky because you do have to get consensus. It's kind of like if I'm playing baseball and you're playing basketball, we're going to have trouble. So we really want to see, can we all be playing the same game? And that's what our group does is we come into organizations and help the whole organization from top down play the same game over time. I love it. And so, yeah. That's that's super helpful. So let's say he does read the book and I get him to buy into it. How does an organization or just an individual say, hey, I love the book. How do I get more of this? What are what other I know I, I realize you have a website and some trainings, but what would be the next step if someone's read the book and say, I, I'd like to have more of this? How do you go deeper? Yeah, so we offer, there are virtual trainings that we offer where people can start to get an introduction. We lead forums like the YPO organization, um, where we bring 10 leaders together and we work together for a whole year in deep dive. And those are really popular and very life-changing. Um, we do offer intensive sometimes for leaders to come in for a few days and really, really get shaken up with um, <laughs> what are all your stories. And we do do a coaches training program, so which is incredibly rigorous and, and very provocative. But that's a that's a, also a really popular program for us. Oh, interesting. I, I love this. And I know that your, your time is limited. We really appreciate your time. And and as we close out, are there any other thoughts that that you'd like to share with the Harvard community that you think that we should know about? Um, let's see here. Well, I think, um, the last, the last commitment, um, of our 15 commitments is, would you be willing to commit to being that which you see missing in the world? I love this commitment. So right now we are seeing conflict in the world, you know, and I say, oh, I wish they wouldn't have conflict. Well, most of us are still having conflict in here where we make some parts less valuable than other parts. We have some of our personality parts dominate other parts. So would I be the resolution first in myself before I go start to try to, you know, tell the world they shouldn't be doing it that way? Because that's one of the things that I see is we're just going to keep repeating these patterns until we do our own inner work here first. So that's one of the things I would say is keep paying attention to can, what can I become that I see missing? I, I'd like to share with you, uh, well, 
a thank you and some gratitude of how the book specifically helped me. Last semester, I got burned out. I was teaching too many classes and, and I kept growling about, oh, the students aren't engaged and why should I put in so much effort if they're not gonna be engaged? And I did, could the opposite be true? And I thought, did I disengage first? And then they disengaged. So I took responsibility for that. And then I only taught classes that I wanted to teach this semester, critical thinking, positive psychology, totally leaned in, loved it. Everything's going great. And one of my students mentioned something about another class. They said, well, well, I'm not engaged in the class because the professor's not. And I was like, oh my God, I think I was right. right." So I want to thank you for that. And and I think my students want to thank you, even though they haven't met you, but they're going to be reading your books. So I, I want to just thank you for the the help you've helped me, and I can't only imagine how many other people you're helping. So thank you for that. That's a beautiful example of taking responsibility. That's great. Well done. And I'm I'm thrilled that you're creating a different result now because of your curiosity. So Diana, thank you so much for your time. This was a great interview. We, we wish it went longer. Uh, hopefully we could touch base again in a few months, but uh, thank you for your time today. Thank it's you, Diana. Pleasure. Thank you yes. so much. That was wonderful. Good. All right. Be well, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.